Well, good morning and happy Easter to you, Cross Lane. It is so good to, to see you and be with you. Um, uh, it is my sincere belief that, uh, that some of you are here this morning by divine appointment. In fact, I probably would say that all of you are here by divine appointment, but certainly some of you. Uh, there are all kinds of people that are here with us this morning. There are those who never miss. You are faithful. You're here every Sunday. We get to see your bright and smiling face, and, and uh, we're encouraged by that. Then there are those who are occasional attenders. You come once in a while. You don't come all the time. And uh, if you're here today, we're really glad that you decided to join us today. It's going to be a great day. And then there are those who, who might be here physically, but mentally, they've kind of got their foot on the brake, right? Um, certainly in spiritual terms, that might describe somebody that's in the room this morning. They're here physically, but spiritually, their foot is kind of, maybe even both feet are on the brakes. Uh, some are here with great excitement and gratitude. Some are here out of some obligation uh, to, that they feel to somebody. Some are here because maybe somebody cute invited you and you're sitting next to them right now. And uh, you would say, normally, I don't necessarily like going to church, but I like church this morning. Church is pretty good for me this morning. It could be that you're here and you have made some form of a trade-off, maybe with your spouse. You know, they, they, your, your wife really wanted you to come to church and you just don't want to hear it for the next week that you stiffed her on going to church on Easter Sunday. So you decided that trading an hour of your time to go to church was worth it so that you just wouldn't have to hear about that anymore. Um, and so if you came for that reason today, I just want you to know we're glad you came. You're welcome here, and uh, hopefully you get something uh, for yourself this morning as you spend some time with us. I will say this. I don't think you're here by accident. I, I don't think it's an accident that you have decided to join us this morning. I believe that a divine appointment has brought us together. And whatever the reason is that brings you to Cross Lane this morning, here's what I think that all of us in the room could agree upon. No one disputes if Jesus was a real person and changed our world. You will, no one really disputes that. You will not find a credible historian or a credible theologian, a credible philosopher, really, who would dispute the fact that Jesus lived and that Jesus has really, in fact, changed history. In fact, um, he changed the way we look at our calendar. He, he split history in half. You know, we keep time with B.C. and A.D., Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. We've, that's how we look at our calendar. Um, a lot of things have been permanently changed because Jesus showed up. So Jesus is indisputable. The only disputable thing today is this. Can Jesus change your life? Can Jesus change your life? And I believe with everything in me that he not only can, but that he died to do so. So what I'd like to do today is I would like to talk about that. I'd like to talk about how Jesus can change your life. If that's true, if, if Jesus really did die to change your life, why is it that so many of us seem to take a step back and we hold off and we never really go all in and place our faith fully in Christ. Why is that? Today, I want to talk about one big reason, and to start, I want to do an exercise with you. This will be fun, and this isn't really a Christian thing. This uh, was developed by researchers. Uh, they have discovered something 
in some groundbreaking research that has taken place at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And uh, the folks out there have, um, have, have developed this study and they've done some research. And so I wanna include you in that this morning. And so your job this morning is to see if you can pick out the toothbrush in the picture that I'm about to show you. Okay, I'm gonna show you a messy bathroom and I want you to see if you can find the toothbrush. Are you ready? Here it is. Can you see it? Okay, take the picture away. <laughs> Did you see the toothbrush? Did you find the toothbrush? All right, let's bring the picture back again. Let's look at the picture again. How many of you caught the green and white toothbrush there in front of the sink? A lot of you, okay. So how many of you actually saw the big toothbrush that is just to the left and underneath the mirror? The, the one that's about three and a half feet long. How many of you saw that one? Did you miss that? It, you missed that, didn't you? They, 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 they have a series of pictures like that where you, you would do the same thing. Let me ask you a question this morning. Why is it that we can miss something so obvious? I mean, that toothbrush <clears throat> is huge. It's a really big toothbrush. And the reason why is that researchers and scientists have been studying this for the past 30 years, and here's what they call it. They call it inattentional blindness. Inattentional blindness. The surprising failure to miss something so obvious because it's bigger than our expectations. See, the reason you missed the toothbrush was because when I said toothbrush, you imagined in your head the, a normal-sized toothbrush, and that's what you're eyes were looking for. So when that picture came up, you're looking for something small. You're not looking for a three and a half foot black toothbrush. Uh, the second reason that we miss things is because uh, our attention can sometimes become focused on something else. And you locked in on the smaller toothbrush in the photo and you ignored the big toothbrush. And I would suggest today that some of you may have showed up with what would be called inattentional blindness when it comes to Jesus and what he did for you and what he wants to do for you. In fact, I would say this, at the first Easter, every single follower of Jesus had inattentional blindness. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Uh, because you may be a skeptic of the Bible this morning, and this could be credible evidence for you where the Bible is concerned, and, and I wanna try and show you that maybe the Bible is true. I have some arguments here to kind of make that case. Uh, because when Jesus rose from the grave, his followers captured that story and they wrote about it in what we call the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and they wrote themselves in, and they wrote themselves in in a way that if you were making this story up, you would not write yourself into the story like that. You just wouldn't, you wouldn't do it like that. The idea of humility pretty much didn't exist before Jesus showed up. And yet, it's humility that you see in the writings of these disciples. You see, in the time of Christ, everybody aspired to greatness. Everybody aspired to fame, to power. The idea that you would be humble, no one thought like that. That, that really wasn't even a paradigm for people to consider. So if Jesus was fake news, then, then these guys would have... Uh, would have not shown the humility that they show when they actually write their Gospels. They would have written themselves in as intelligent. They would have written themselves in as the hero of the story. But that's not what they did. I want to show you how the disciples were completely blind. Here's an example from the book of Matthew. 
And I want you to look and see how obvious it was who Jesus was and what he was going to do. He spells it out for them. He tells them right up front. We, we, we start in Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and on the third day be raised to life. Now, that's, he, he told them all of that. Then we go to the next chapter, uh, chapter 17 of Matthew, and, and Jesus is in a different region. He's, he's once again teaching, and this is what he says. His disciples hear all of this. They gathered again in Galilee. Jesus told them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. Then... In Matthew 20, the last week of the life of Jesus, he's getting ready to go to the cross. He takes the 12 aside, and he basically says, guys, you know, come over here. One more time, I need you to listen up. And in Matthew 20, verse 18, we read this. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Now let me just ask you a question. Looking at those verses, could it be more obvious to these disciples what is going to happen to Jesus? I mean, we just recounted three different places where Jesus told them exactly what was going to happen. Here's what's amazing. On Easter Sunday morning, do you know how many of Jesus' disciples actually thought that he was going to raise again? Zero. None of them thought that. Here's how we know that. Because on the very first Easter morning, not one single disciple is outside the tomb having a countdown waiting for Jesus to come popping out of the tomb. You don't hear them coming, you know, standing around going 10, 9, 8, 7. There, there's none of that. Where were they? They were in an upper room in Jerusalem behind a locked door, scared to death. Jesus was dead, and they were afraid they were going to be next. It was over for them. Everything was done. The whole dream had been shattered. When the women went to the tomb, they weren't going because they expected to find a risen Savior. They were going because the night before, the men had done a, a you know, kind of a, a rush job on the preparation of the body, and they were just pretty certain that those guys hadn't gotten it right. So they were going the next morning to do the job the right way. They were hoping to anoint his body with perfumes and spices and get him ready for burial. The women came back to the disciples and they said, the tomb is empty, and nobody believed them. After all the talking that Jesus had done to let them know, hey, this is exactly how it's going to go. This is how, this is who, this is when, this is what you can expect to happen. After all of that, eventually Jesus will appear in front of them. Uh, and when he does, they look at him and they think that he's a ghost. They, don't, they, they can't. They can't wrap their head around the idea that Jesus has risen from the dead. They would eventually come around and they would believe and once they did, they literally gave their lives for Jesus Christ and the truth of the resurrection. But why did they miss it to begin with? And why, did so many, why do so many of us miss it? And I would tell you, 
that the reason is inattentional blindness. So I just want to spend a little time today thinking about how this can happen to us. How do, how do we get to this place? Because I'm just telling you, it's happening to somebody in the room this morning. You have missed Jesus. So today, I want to talk about two reasons that people miss the message of Easter. And it's really the two reasons that the researchers at the University of California, Santa Barbara, have isolated for us in, the, in this idea of intentional blindness. Number one, God's unconditional love is so big, it's beyond our wildest expectations. Now let's just think that through for a minute. Isn't the love, isn't the love that God offers you different than just about any other kind of love that you have ever experienced in your life? Almost every kind of love that you experience uh, day-to-day in your relationships, you would have to say is a conditional love. When you give your love to someone, you expect to receive love back. And when you don't receive love back, you begin to withhold your love from other people. And I can just tell you that when that happens, that relationship is in peril. When, When people begin to withhold their love from one another, the relationship is in jeopardy of crumbling. There are conditions. There are conditions on friendship. There are conditions on family. There are conditions uh, on our love when we're married. There are certain lines in your marriage that if they get crossed enough times, eventually that love is going to fall apart and the relationship is going to be done. Do do you know who knows more (laughs) about unconditional love than anybody else? Uh, That would be those of you who are cat lovers. You know who you are. The cat lovers in the room. Here's what I would tell you. Try not feeding your cat for a week and see how much they love you, right? They're not going to be around. I love this. I saw this, um, this meme. This is really funny. You have to be a certain age, I think, to catch this, but we'll see. Um, I'm not saying your cat doesn't care about you. I'm just saying if Lassie was a cat, Timmy would still be in that well. <laughs> exactly. Timmy would be dead. If Lassie was a cat, because Lassie's not, if Lassie's a cat, Timmy's got no hope. Now we laugh, but here's, here's something that every single one of us knows. We know that we, we, the, the love we experience around us is conditional. It's a conditional love. And that's why it's so hard for some of us to wrap our heads around this idea that God loves us as much as he does. It's absolutely unconditional. The love of God is an unconditional love, which means no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, uh, no matter where you've come from, God loves you, and and he wants to forgive everything in your life. Perhaps one of the most well-known and and beloved passages of Scripture in the whole Bible is found in John chapter 3, verse 16. I want to read it to you, and I want to read it to you from the message translation this morning. It says, this is how much God loved the world. And when you see the word world there, I want you to take the word world out and I want you to put your name in the blank spot. Okay? So this is how much God loved Chris. This is how much God loved Sally. This is how much God loved John. Whatever your name is, just put your name in that line. This is how much God loved Brett. How much did he love you? He loved you so much, he gave his son his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. 
if there were no one else but you, God would have still sent Jesus to rescue you. All your messes, all your mess-ups, everything that you've done, he would have sent Jesus for you. God is the perfect Father. And that is kind of a dangerous thing for me to say this morning, and I realize that. Because some of you, when I talk about God as Father, you don't, you didn't, you don't have a great relationship with your Father. When you think about your Father, maybe he didn't do the best job all the time when you were younger, and so you might have some issues, and you hear me try to liken God unto a father, and you think to yourself, well, Brett, if, if he's going to be a father, my father didn't do a very good job. I don't want to hear any of that. Uh, you might even say, I'm out at that point. For some of you, the idea of a perfect father is just almost too much to wrap your head around. Now listen, I'm the father of three kids, and I love them very much. I, I, I love them so much that I would take a bullet for any one of my three kids. It wouldn't even be a thought. I would do that in an instant. Um, I would take a bullet for many of you, more than likely, as long as you don't root for Duke. I would probably take, <laughs> I'd probably take a bullet for you. But I would not, under any circumstance, under any circumstance, would I allow my children to take a bullet for you. I just wouldn't do that. And that is exactly what God did when he offered Jesus up to die for you and for me. He put Jesus on a cross, something that the Romans had perfected as a form of torture and death so that he could take on himself all your sin and all your guilt and forgive it. And for some of us, that is so big, it can be hard to get a handle on it. It can be hard to, to truly understand that in a way that it makes sense for us, and it's possible that it's so big that you've missed it. That's the first reason we miss it. It's just a, it's a huge idea. The second reason is this. Our attention gets focused on everything but God. The researchers who have discovered this thing called inattentional blindness uh, tell us that your visual focus is really not a lot wider than your thumb, and that the wider your, your you know, periphery gets with, with your vision, um, every inch you travel away from your thumb, everything gets just a little bit more out of focus and a little bit more forgotten. And gradually, over time, everything that's outside of that becomes somewhat unclear. So the, 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 the thing, you know, way out here that you've got put out in the periphery, you, it's either not in focus at all or it's not even on your mind. And I think that for a lot of us, what's happened is we've put God so far to the periphery that he's out of mind and we just haven't even really focused on him. So the question this morning is, where's your focus? What are you focused on? on. Many of us focus on making money because we think that that is the thing that is going to, to satisfy the longings of our heart. Some of us focus our attention at, at, at our work, doing a certain job, and we think that that's going to satisfy us and fill us up. Some of us are so focused on pleasure that we think that in our pursuit of pleasure, if we can get enough pleasure, it will be fulfilling in our life. Some of us, we pour all of our attention into a hobby, or, or getting good at a sport. And we think that in doing that, that's gonna bring us the fulfillment that we want. And when all of those things fail, because they always do, they cannot satisfy you long-term. What do we do? Often we turn 
to something destructive. Maybe it's a substance, it might be a drug, it might be alcohol, it might be pornography, it might be bad relationships. And we wonder why when we turn to those things that we feel empty on the inside. You are empty on the inside because you have put God to the side. And the only thing that can make you truly feel fulfilled is him. With the time that we have remaining, I'd like to talk to you about the door that you need to walk through. But before we get to the door that you need to walk through, I want to talk about some of the doors that maybe you have walked, uh, have, have tried in the past. I want to talk about some doors that you, maybe you've walked past these doors, because let's face it, for a variety of reasons, there are some of you who, who just need to come home. You know, and you know it. It's not something that, this isn't new information. Me saying it might kind of awaken that in you, but you've known it for a long time. But in order to walk through the right door to come home, you need to walk past some of these other doors. And I want to talk about three of those doors real quickly. The first door is the wrong door. <laughs> Have you ever walked through the wrong door before? I, was, uh, I walked into a public restroom one time, and I just thought it was weird. From the minute I walked in, it just seemed weird. It didn't feel right. Uh, everything was toilets with stalls. You know, when men have urinals in their, in their bathrooms, and when I walked in, there were no urinals on the wall, and I just thought, man, this is really weird. And, and uh, there was nobody else in there, so I kept going, and I just kept thinking to myself, man, this is the strangest bathroom I've ever been in my life. And, the, the, you know, just all these stalls just looked weird to me. And... Um, so I went ahead and did my business and washed my hands and walked outside. And when I, when I walked back out to join the people that I was with, somebody was smiling real big and they looked at me and they said, everything okay? And I said, yeah, everything's fine. Why, why wouldn't everything be fine? And then that's when they informed me. I, I told them, I said, that's the weirdest bathroom I've ever been in. And they said, well, it ought to be because that was the women's room, okay? <laughs> you, just, you just went in, and you know, my first thought was, well, why didn't somebody tell me? Why didn't you saw me walking in and you didn't catch me? So, you know, lesson there is choose your friends wisely because they'll let you walk into the wrong bathroom. But um, some of you have been trying to go through the wrong door. Uh, you know, some of you have been chasing the wrong door for so long. What is the wrong door? Trying to find purpose in anything or anyone outside of Jesus is the wrong door. Uh, this might be where some of you are this morning. You, you may have walked in here and, and you'd say, Brett, that's exactly what I've been trying to do. You've been out there, you've been chasing all the wrong things, and at some point you just finally come to the realization that nothing in this world is going to bring you the peace and the happiness and the joy and the purpose outside of Jesus. You will always be empty until you discover Jesus. You were born, we talked about this last week, you were born with a God-sized vacuum in your soul. And the only thing that will fill that <clears throat> is God. And yet we try so hard sometimes to put all these other shapes, all these other things in that God-sized space and none of it works. We, we try money, we try success, we try sex, we try sports, we try relationships, we try alcohol, and at some point you come to the realization that none of those things really works. The only thing that will fill that spot is God. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, if I find, myself, find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, 
wouldn't the most probable explanation be that we were made for something more than what this world can offer? Of course that is the explanation. Have you missed it? Have you been trying to walk through the wrong door? I want to challenge you to do something this morning. I want to challenge you to tell yourself the truth. When I ask that question, have you been walking through the wrong door? Tell yourself the truth. Here's the second door. The second door is the locked door. The locked door represents you trying to go through it on your good works. You're trying to walk through a door and you think that what will open the door is your ability to do good things. But that's not how it works. We, we tell ourselves, you know, I'll just, I'll do good things if I do enough good things with God. I'll be made right with God. God will like me. He'll think I'm a good person. He'll let me into heaven. Do you know what the Bible doesn't say? The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible says the exact opposite of that. Here's what you need to understand this morning. Good people don't go to heaven. They don't. If good people could go to heaven, how would you ever know if you're good enough? Well, you, you would say something like, well, you know, I'm at 51% right now, and, and the bad side of me is at about 49%, and I just have to keep it up uh, above that 50% line. If I can just stay above 50%, then God will let me in. And you think that you're going to get to heaven, and God's going to put you on some kind of scale and, and he's going to see that the good outweighs the bad, if even just by a little bit, and then he's going to look and say, come on in. Listen, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Forgiven people do. Your goodness is not the key that makes things right with God. Your goodness is not the key. We keep trying to use that key to open the door, and that key will not work. It's always going to be locked when you're trying to open the door with your goodness. It just can't be done. Do you know that God is perfect? Did you know that everybody that's going to be in heaven is going to be perfect? Did you know that only perfect people go to heaven? And you hear that and you think, well, if that's true, then I'm in trouble. Listen, your goodness will never get you through. You don't hold the key of, of goodness to get into heaven. The only key that will work to unlock that door is the key of God's grace. And when you are forgiven and you understand that God's grace is what gains you entry into heaven, then you're on to something. Then you understand. But the wrong door is the door that says, well, I just got to be good enough. I just, if I can just be good enough, I'll get to go to heaven. Um, I want you to see this verse this morning. This is James chapter 2, verse 10. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. The only way to be reconciled to God is to be forgiven, fully forgiven. Everybody is familiar with John 3.16, but what they don't read are the two verses that follow John 3.16. I'd like to read those to you. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust him as long, has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. 
It's a locked door. And you've been thinking that the key was your goodness. I want to talk about the last door that many of you have tried to walk through, and maybe you can relate to this this morning. It's called the slammed door. And this is what the slammed door represents. The slammed door represents you thinking that God is ashamed of you, that God somehow is repulsed by you, and he won't accept you because of your past, because of what you've done, because of where you've been. Some of us here this morning have so much guilt, so much shame. We have so much heaped on us pain from our past. Because of our past, things that we said we'd never do again, and we found ourselves doing those exact same things. Things that we'd never told anyone about. We use all kinds of, of, of things to cope with that, and we try to keep that pushed down so no one will ever know just how bad we are. But it's still there. And we think inside, because of all the things we've done, and we know we're wrong, we think that, that we, uh, if we decided to approach God and ask God to accept us, that God would open the door and he would see that it's us and he, and he would just take one look and he would slam the door in our face. We think that God would deny us. We think that God would reject us. We think that God might say to us, are you kidding me? you expect me to embrace you after everything you've done after everything that you've every every place you've been all these things that you've done and that's what a lot of people think they think i'll get my life right first i'll, I'll clean everything up and then i'll come to jesus and see if he'll accept me listen to me this is one of the greatest lies that you can ever believe the devil wants you to believe that lie that you've got to clean yourself up first. He wants to keep you from God as long as he possibly can, and he will use anything at his disposal, especially shame. He'll say things like, who do you think you are? Do you really think you're going to walk into a church and people are going to accept you? You really think you're going to pray to God and God wants to hear your prayers? You think after everything you've done, I know how evil you are, I know how bad you are, who do you think? You're kidding. Here's the truth. There is a God who waits for you with open arms. There is no door slam. His love is unconditional no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. And until you believe that, shame will always hold you back. Shame will always keep you at, at, at a, a, a distance from God, a, a God who loves you immensely who just cherishes you to no end there's not one person in scripture who cleaned up their life before they came to christ not one they came to jesus and jesus helped them to get their life in order tim keller said this i love this to be loved and not known is comforting but superficial that's where some of you are you you have some people around and they love you but you would say but they really don't know me and so it feels superficial. He goes on, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. And that's the fear we have of God sometimes, that, that, that if he knew us, if he, you know, that he really knows us and therefore he can't really love us. But look at this, look at the last thing he says. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything else. It's time to come home. You say, Brett, how do I do that? 
I want to come home, but, but, but how? Well, there's really only one way, and that is through the open door. The open door. Because God stands and knocks at the door of your soul. God wants to have entry into your life. And he stands and knocks. And for some of you, you've been hearing that knock for a very long time. For some of you, it's a really, really loud knock by this point. For, for some of you, you've just been trying to ignore it all you can, but you know that you need to open that door. The famous passage from Revelation is where we get this idea. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. There's one door. It's an open door. And many of you know this. Many of you know today that God has been knocking for really quite some time. Sometimes it's just a small faint knock. Some of you aren't quite, you're just now starting to hear it. Some of you, God's been pounding for a long, long time trying to get you to open the door. The only question is, Will you open the door? Will you open the door? And when you open the door, what you're going to find on the other side is a God who is willing to embrace you with open arms. And you say, well, Brett, that's cool and all. I mean, I really appreciate you trying to help me to see this, but how do I open the door? Well, after the first Easter, a group of people were gathered together and they had heard the message of Jesus for the first time and they basically came to a place where they said, well, how do we, how, we want to be saved. How do we, how do we get saved? And Peter had a great clear answer. We read this in Acts chapter two. It says this, Peter replied, repent, which really just means change your mind. Okay. Change your mind, turn and walk the other direction, repent and be baptized. We, we baptize here. That's a a clear picture of the life of Jesus. You're dying to yourself. You're buried and you're raised to walk in the newness of life. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God invites anyone to be forgiven and to come home to him. And the way that happens is it happens by a free gift that God gives and it comes when you do three things. When you believe in Jesus, when you repent of your sins, which is basically just saying, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then three, be baptized. Some of you need to come home. He's offering you a gift and you need to receive it. It's the best deal that you're ever gonna have made to you in your life, complete and utter forgiveness in exchange for your life. There is no better weekend than Easter to come home and make it happen. I have the baptistry all heated up. We're going to have some baptisms at the end of the last service. We, can, we, can, we would love to add you to that list. Today would be the day that would change your life. What are you waiting for? Come home. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the life of Jesus. Not just that he came and not just that he lived and not just that he died for us, even though that is huge. But Father, he went to the grave and he conquered the grave and he rose, which validated everything that he'd ever said and proved to us that he had the authority to make a claim on our life. Anyone who can die and raise themselves again to life. Father, we, we bow at your feet. We, we tell you that we love you. 
And Lord, if there is somebody in the room this morning who's been putting you off because they just have felt like they weren't good enough and the shame has been too great, the guilt is, is too profound, I pray, Father, that you would overcome all that, that you would help them to take the step necessary to humble themselves and to give their life to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, ever grateful for the resurrection. Amen.